August is Pipeline Preview Month, according to SNMA's National Service Protocols, developed by the Community Service Committee. Throughout August, the Community Service will introduce you to the various pipeline programs housed under the Pipeline Mentoring Institute, or PMI, including the Health Professions Recruitment and Exposure Program, HPREP, Youth Science Enrichment Program, YCEP, and the Brotherhood Alliance for Science Education, BASE. The Pre-Medical Minority Enrichment and Development PMED protocol includes activities that SNMA chapters host for MAPS members. If you are interested in learning more about the PMI and how your SNMA or MAPS chapter can start a program, we invite you to attend our webinar series where we will showcase chapters that have successfully started and maintained pipeline programs on their campuses. We have two webinars this month, August 8th and August 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. For more information on these webinars and for more SNMA opportunities, be sure to sign up for the SNMA Weekly Opportunities Newsletter. Now, let's start the show. What's good, everybody? Welcome to SNMA Presents the Lounge. Whether you're in the student lounge, doctor's lounge, or lounging around at home, get ready to join SNMA for meaningful conversations on topics affecting minorities in medicine and groups that often sit at the margins of health care. And it's your boy, student Dr. Aldwin. And what part of the human body would I like to be based on personality and why? Of course, the brain. I'm the resident neurologist and psychiatrist because without the brain, we can't function. And if we can't function, we can't live. The brain controls our heart. It controls our breathing. It controls our walking and controls my ability to connect with y'all as an audience. So the brain is the best, baby. I don't care what nobody says. Let's get it. Hey everyone, I'm student Dr. Isabella, and what human body part would I be based on my personality? I think I would actually be the gut, and it sounds a little bit, you know, a little bit disgusting, but you know why I'd be the gut? Because the gut is where, you know, people say you have a gut feeling about something, or, you know, something just feels wrong. You feel that like little discomfort mm-hmm. in your gut. Mm-hmm. I follow that to the T. Like I in like the way I follow my gut feeling and my intuition when it comes to just everything in life, when it comes to whether or not I feel like I should go for this opportunity or whether or not I feel like I should remain in this space that I don't feel, you know, is safe right now. I think that the gut is almost like a second sense of mm-hmm. how to be in tune with your environment and to be in tune with your mind, honestly. So yeah, I think I would be the gut. Um, and it, you know, I like food too. So thank God I have a gut that I can break my food down <laughs> <laughs> and everything else that comes with that. Be I careful. You, you want to be careful with ulcers and gastric, you know, <laughs> you're right. There you go. Professor Aldwin. <laughs> <laughs> What's up everybody. This is your girl student, Dr. Erica Dingle. And what part of the human body would I be? based on my personality. So I would have to pick two. I'm going to step on Alwyn's turf for a second and I'm going to go a little (laughs) bit deeper into the brain. I would say I'm the amygdala because I'm very much an emotional processing Mm. center. 
and the limbic system, you know, that's like the oldest part of the brain. And y'all know mm-hmm. how I be feeling like auntie out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I will also pick the heart because the heart makes things flow mainly, you know, your blood, your oxygen, your nutrients, all that good stuff that helps to keep you alive. Mm-hmm. And I think I do that for people on the day to day. So Aww. those are my body parts. Love that. You like that? Yeah. Yes. Cosine. <laughs> so y'all know what time it is. Drum roll, please. <laughs> it's time to run the list. Everyone's favorite part of the show. So for our preclinical students and for all of our loungers, running the patient list on the wards allows the team to address the pressing matters of the day. So in this segment of the show, we'll be discussing some recent events in medicine and pop culture affecting our communities and the populations we serve. And boy, do we have a list to run with y'all today. Y'all ready? Much do. Let's go. Lego. <laughs> so I'm going to just drop it real quick. Just like she dropped that damn picture. Ooh. Issa Rae got married. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, shout out to the queen. Listen, and you know, it's crazy. Like Issa Rae, you know, that's my Capricorn uh, sister. You know, I got to, you know, I'm into astrology. So there's already, there's already some things that I already know when it comes to us Capricorn girls, you know, like we very School much us. do listen. So Capricorns, we are very much, so it's an earth sign. So we are grounded and we do, we do like to, you know, maintain some form of, I guess, privacy in regards to like what we deem is necessary. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so uh, usually with Capricorns, you won't hear them say anything unless it's absolutely necessary. I will say that for sure. We don't just divulge everything, especially we're very selective with who we choose to divulge information with. Now, I'm not saying she did this because she's a Capricorn, right? Because maybe she doesn't even like believe in astrology or anything regarding that. But I would say right. in regards to like her getting married and people not having a clue about it, mm-hmm. I think that people are kind of interpreting it as like she was trying to like hide her man and i don't think that's what that was i mm-hmm. think that it was her maintaining her right to a private life outside of what we know her to be Issa Rae, this you know tv director tv writer actress right. like all these big roles that we know her to be but outside of that she's a human being with a personal life and her own friends mm-hmm. and we probably have no idea who her friends are and all of these other things and so i think that was just her trying to maintain a sense of normalcy outside of her job and she has a right, right. to do that but some people want to say oh she was trying to be you know trying to keep him a secret or she was trying to kind of like you know, not really be open about it. And I don't think that's what it is. I think that we have to like first acknowledge that she's a regular human being like you and me first. And with that comes her right to do and say whatever she chooses to do or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. she deems is necessary. So yeah, I I think that's kind of how I see the situation. Yeah, she was actually her man. They've been together since 2012. So he actually was on one of the episodes of Misadventures of a Black Girl. He had an actual cameo for four seconds. Uh, He was like dating... A white woman. Um, but he's been around and her family has fervently supported him and their relationship. And I do agree with you, Isabella. Like she don't owe nobody anything at the end of the day. I, I didn't know she all. had a man, but I think it was beautiful the way that she elaborately displayed her wedding. And she gave yeah. him just a little bit of tidbit, but not enough for you to make it seem like it's that personal because she don't know us like she don't have to make it personal. And I right. love that she's celebrating black love, too. And, and shout mm-hmm. out to her man, too. He's from Senegal and he's an international banker, which is really dope. And he's 
been okay. r- with her this whole time, riding with her, supporting her, and right. being on up and up and up. And he'd be on the red carpet with her. Like, he's a true, genuine man, you know what I'm saying? Right. Con- um, connected to his woman. And I think oftentimes, you know, we see our celebrities in the limelight oftentimes, and we think that we're owed something. Like, we're right. owed who they are. Right. We're owed what they eat. We're owed when they go out. Like, nah. Right. They, she has a she has her own duty to her own personal life, and she has a duty if she wants to you know the public life, which is us. Right. And I think it's beautiful that she's able to separate that because oftentimes when we talk about mental health, that's something that just confines and restricts people, mm-hmm. and that's oftentimes what people they don't know what direction to go and how they live their life because they're trying to connect with the audience, but then also connect to their personal life, and it's hard to disconnect that, and they find right. themselves in a quandary. So it's beautiful. Shout out to Issa Rae. I'm so proud of you, gorgeous. She looks so beautiful. Her pictures looked amazing. Wow. They really did. I'm happy. I mean, I wish more people got the privacy that they deserved. Mm. Um, And I think it poses a bigger question. Like you mentioned it earlier. Like, is it privacy or was she keeping him from the world? Mm -hmm. Like nobody owes people anything. And I think that's what social media has done i've seen posts like well if you're gonna post your relationship then when this over i want to know what happened you know like right jokingly but at the same time like absolutely not like what i choose to show you is what i choose to show you and that's my business so shout out to everybody who's out here getting married and dropping marriage pics and that's it because i've seen it done a couple times and i think that is so dope. That's about to and, be the move. And me. when I do that, I don't want to hear no one say nothing because no one say <laughs> listen, nada. It's rough out here. It's rough out here. Okay. Some of us, some of us don't want us to. Don't, some of us don't want to drop pictures until we know it's forever. Yeah. And forever is mm-hmm. when that ring comes. Okay. And so, <laughs> listen, mind your business. Forever, That's all I'm gonna say. Forever will be on the honeymoon. What's, Y'all will get a picture on the honeymoon. What's right. the model? MYB. And we better be more than getting a picture on the honeymoon. We better be at the wedding. <laughs> absolutely okay <laughs> absolutely i would but Issa's not the um, only one dropping photos and and mm-hmm. things around here okay we got other uh top-notch names uh like kanye who just went out and just released a new album called donda out of the blue so yeah, my frustration <laughs> with that though he, he fake released the it al- yeah a fake he- release it was like I'm going to just come sing for y'all or stand. Actually, stand he here. Do a, he, he didn't do nothing. He, he literally just, just walked like, around. He, like, he just yeah. had a wig cap. He just had a wig right. cap on his head. And he was bopping his head like this. <laughs> That's <laughs> a The music was playing. <laughs> but sold the place out. Like, he right. sold that joint Over 40,000 tickets were sold, man. And I right. said the Mercedes-Benz crazy. Stadium could seat 70,000 people. You know what I mean? Right. At the end of the day. So, uh, shout out to Kanye. Um, I'm I'm not necessarily in full support of what's going on with him because, you know, he has a very interesting past. And it's crazy when we talk about cancel culture and all that. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But I think it's beautiful. Don is a commemoration to his mother who died in right. the uh, mid to late 2000s from um, breast um, um breast reconstruction surgery and things of that nature. And so, and it also is a commemoration to his family. You know, he's recently divorced. We talk about Issa Rae getting married and he's dealing with the mental health and anxiety Mm, and the issues of being divorced. Um, Kim K was actually on hand to attend Mm -hmm. his screening for, which is really interesting. And his uh, four beautiful beautiful children was there, but he said he was going to release it on that day and everybody just pulled up. It was kind of like a fake, like, you know, he he pump faked him, like, got him. You know what I mean? Everybody (laughs) pulled up. And then I know a lot of people that pulled up to it and it was like, yeah, he wasn't even really doing nothing. He wasn't really even, he didn't even have a mic in his hand. He was just walking around in that big white. <laughs> right. Like, 
like plastic on the floor. Right. Literally, literally on a cloud around. in red. Literally. Right. <laughs> but August 5th, you know, he's releasing, a, uh, he's doing another one. So they're trying to come up with creative ways to actually do this showing because there's a lot of pressure on him and, on, and his team. Be like, you can't do the same thing. We want you to like really pull up with something different with the energy. And he's been at the stadium. He spent a million dollars a day at the right. stadium. This is stay there and get his own mind right. So it's pretty interesting, this whole process with Kanye. You know what I mean? I don't know what y'all what y'all think about this though. This whole like issue with Kanye. Like a couple years ago, he was like, "Yo, I support Trump. I denounce slavery. Slavery wasn't real. We had a choice to be enslaved." Like, mm-hmm. and now everybody's like throwing up mad energy, mad bread, coming up and pulling up to his concerts. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't feel. I don't feel that. I think yeah. I was even gonna like. I was thinking about that. Like you know, Kanye. And his career has just been through so many like seasons. So it's gone through so many levels, you know, like I feel like every single year there's something controversial popping up about Kanye, whether it's about his music, (laughs) whether it's about his view on a politician, whether it's about something he did, you know? So it's like, I don't even know how to feel about him, honestly, at this point, at least when it comes to like how he connects and relates to the black community um, and doing so like a lot of these controversial things. However, it's like, you know, I don't know whether or not like the all the heat he gets is like can be compared to say like what happened when Chrisette Michelle Michelle mm-hmm. was like completely blacklisted after she performed right. at the 2017 inauguration. You know, it's like mm-hmm. like it's like how how come we're not giving I guess like the same energy with people who also are doing other controversial things. So I do think that Best. that ha- like we need to think about that too. Like what is it that denotes or what is it that mm-hmm. warrants somebody to be you know, cancel versus another person being canceled. So I do think that's a question we have to sit with. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think a couple things. So one, I've been a yay fan since forever. Um, <laughs> right. I also feel like, and this is just me. I think we put too much, not pressure, but like we give too much credit in certain a- aspects of life that some of these people just don't, really deserve i'm not ever gonna listen to kanye about political advice right or anything (laughs) politics related like you know what kanye to me is an artist and i appreciate his musical artistry i Mm -hmm. think he's a musical genius from i mean literally from like watching him on mtv cribs where he described a beat as a sound i mean as a like he he described a sound as like something visual Mm -hmm. so I appreciate Kanye for that. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend and we were talking about the whole Kanye getting, not really getting heat versus like Chrisette Michelle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but Chrisette Michelle, like she's not as, and wasn't as popular. Um, val- uh, yeah. Popular. I almost want to even say valuable, like, as hard mm. as that ah. is to hear. <laughs> yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, the more you do, in a field, yep. the less likely it is for you to be shunned. I mean, that's what we kind of see historically. Right. So Facts. like Chrisette Michelle, it was easy to throw her away versus right. Kanye. And uh, not to say that it's right. Um, it could be very deeply rooted in patriarchy if we want to try to, you know, if we want to break it down for real, for real. Mm-hmm. Um it may not be rooted in patriarchy. It may be other people feel the same way. Like Kanye has done more. And Chrisette Michelle just really didn't do a lot. I was a fan of Chrisette Michelle's. I don't know that I threw her away. If she bought, if she came out with an album tomorrow, because I like her sound mm-hmm. and I really could appreciate her artistry, I would still buy it. Um, 
but yeah, her, she wasn't as popular. So right. it was just like, oh, easy to toss her, um, which sucks. <laughs> but right. that's the music industry. Like, call right. a spade a spade. Right. Right. They didn't even do that to Lil Wayne either. Like, it's so, like, he took a picture with Trump and he came yeah. out with songs. People, like, they, oh, yeah, cancel Lil Wayne. Next thing you know, like, he's still lit. And they Lil still Wayne is not going to be canceled. Room, I'm like, sorry. Like, he's not so, going to be canceled not. anytime. So, do you know the, the know. impact it's, he's made on the rap industry? He's not He's I, not I going anywhere. It's, it's, it's just, like, it's, it's I still rap. Yeah, I still wrap the Carter two and the I'm Carter saying, three word okay. for word. Yeah, yeah, like baby, Wayne is not, yeah. he's not going anywhere he's for not me. Going I'm anywhere. Sorry. Some of the best years of my life came from both Kanye's and that, Wayne's that's soundtracks. On, that's on so, game. Yeah. Right. They're etched. You know what I'm saying? I right. literally can't toss them anywhere. They could right. be dummies and <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing it's like it's about whatever. separating the artist from the artistry right like exactly like it's like are we going to look at this person based on who they are in terms of like what they do outside of their work like this is their job right versus right. like who they actually are you know or how they are like during their job and like when they make this music and they want like people to consume it like how are we going to look mm-hmm. at them so i think it's like it's about how do you view them if you view them like on a personal basis then you have no business i guess listening to their music right versus if you're just listening to their music and like absorbing that aspect of who they are then anything else at that point honestly is like not really worth noticing or not really worth you know putting energy into right 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 that's a fact yeah we you know we try to cancel kanye we think we could cancel kanye but it's he's uncancelable you know what i'm saying but Uncancelable. Uncancelable. You know? Uncancelable. Well, you know who, all, who, who else is also uncancelable? Simone Biles. It. She's the not legend, going anywhere. The GOAT. You know what I'm saying? Like, they try to take her down. Shout out to Black Women Magic. Shout out to all the beautiful Black women. Actually, all yes, the Black yes, women. Yes. Yeah, all beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it's crazy, like, how scoring rules were not in favor to prevent her from getting the scores that she knows she's deserved. And she is mm. so excellent and so competent in her field that she was way above stars and stars above these people. And they try to restrict her from her, you know, excellence and ability to compete and be so great. So it's just like, how do y'all feel about them doing that? Like in terms of Simone Biles, we see her in the media all the time. Like the other day I was listening to, I was watching her do a performance or whatever. And Homeboy was talking about, oh, Simone Biles is doing a horrible job. What's going on with her? But, but meanwhile, the other white chick come behind her and she messing up too. And he's not saying nothing. Like, what? Like, <laughs> oh, they always have something to say. They, they always yeah. have something to say about a black woman. They can't let right. us yeah. rest. And, you know, like, I want to just give a real, uh, I want to, like, uh, say a quote that Simone had said to NBC Sports. She said, am I in a league of my own? Yes. But that doesn't mean you can't credit me for what I'm doing. They keep mm-hmm. asking us to do that. more yep. difficulty and to give more artistry, give more harder skills. So we do and then they don't credit it and i don't think that's fair right so it's like it's it's Mm -hmm. this pressure that you know she's under that she has to be better she has to excel she has to you know how they always tell us growing up like you have to be twice as better than Mm -hmm. your white Mm -hmm. counterparts just to even have a seat at the table that's 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 probably the model that she was most likely raised under as well Mm -hmm. that you wanted to sit there and be average you sound crazy it's like i just feel like you know, women like Simone have to just just being a black woman and then being in a sport that has very, very little black people, let alone black women. She has to she's done so much work to, you know, make a name for herself and, and to separate herself from the sport. And now she's kind of being, you know, devalued by doing that just because her white peers can't keep up. That's unfortunate that they can't keep up, but she shouldn't have to shrink herself to make them mm-hmm. feel comfortable. And the fact that she can't even get credit for it, I think is crazy because the whole point of a sport is that you want to keep on, you know, pushing the level as to how 
difficult mm-hmm. the sport can be. Like what is what is like the the level that we want the sport to reach eventually? If a sport's going to stay the same, no one's going to be watching. It's going to be the same thing, right? You want other people to come in to make it more competitive and to you know to up right. the ante a little bit. So I just feel like the fact that they're kind of like restricting her from doing that is really it's anti-black, is racist. Period. Like I'm just going to say it flat out because you know I just think it's anti-black. So yeah. yeah. I mean, historically, this has been done. There was a figure skater in, um, I think it was 19, yeah, 1976. If I'm pr- mispronouncing her name, I apologize. Surya Banali, mm-hmm. um, who landed a backflip. And that had been illegal since 1976 for concerns of safety during competitions, which caused her to be penalized and finish far from gold. Mm-hmm. And honestly, with regards to Bi- uh, Simone Biles's her talent, I mean, although she can do these magical flips and turns, like you said, is, you know, up your game. Um, right. And I think you're kind of crossing or teetering like a fine line between safety and athleticism. Right. Um, but at the same time, like, we want we want action. Right. <laughs> we right. want more action, so period. We want action. And if, right. she, if she has the athletic talent to get mm. that stuff done don't take away her points like right. come on it's right. I, it's just, we always out here struggling I, i'm trying to do better now you telling me i can't do better i won't actually receive the credit for doing better right so i don't know and, <laughs> and you know with surya bonali same like she had a similar uh a situation in, in regards to um, just not getting the same credit as you mentioned, but also she grew up, she was adopted and she grew up in a family of people that were white and around her were all white people. And so she mm-hmm. became accustomed to that culture, accustomed to interact and engaging, but she always felt like she was never good enough. And that's why she tried to reach a pinnacle, try to overstep the hurdles each and every time. And she felt like she could not accomplish. She could not get over that throughout her career, although she was right. very successful and garnered some Olympics and uh, several gold medals and things of that nature. It's just crazy to see how that's impacted her now and how she regards her history and her career. And she's oftentimes states like she could have done way more if there wasn't that pressure, if there wasn't, you know, that if she had that leeway to be who she wanted to be and mm-hmm. express herself. And now she's teaching that actually she's now uh, ice skating coach, too. So shout out to her. She's giving back, I love that. especially to, yeah. you know, um, black women that are um, dedicated to the ice skating culture. But it's just right. like this is it's crazy. That's been that was like in the 90s and all that. And then it's still consistently affecting our black women in these sports where we don't necessarily see them as much. Right. I don't honestly know a lot of girls from my block that want to be ice skaters or that want right. to be, you know, um, in ballet or that want to, you know, do, you know, all the balancing beam things. But at the end of the day, they're setting a standard and a lot of girls are looking up to them and they're going to go out there and they want to feel like they want to accomplish that. And I think we can't restrict them. We got to still uplift them. So to all the haters that's hating on Simone Biles, I see what y'all doing. Y'all trying to maintain. <laughs> now, they trying to maintain their part. They trying to maintain their peace. But we're not going to be peaceful. We're going to support right. Simone all the way through. And she's going to set the standard. We're going to bring 20 more for one of hers. And we're going to dominate every, <laughs> every, every field. Like, y'all try to dominate our Period. countries in the past. Y'all try to dominate what we was doing where we was at y'all try to dominate who we are as individuals we gonna dominate you hear and like what do you guys think about the fact that she backed out from the olympics because of these mental health concerns she had i mean a lot of people were giving her heat well some people were under a lot of people a black people were give uh, understanding and saying you know she has to do what's necessary she has to do what's good for her but then you have Mm. people saying you know like was it selfish like 
I've been hearing different things. So what do you guys think about that? Mind your I business. She, yeah, I personally she backed out not right. just because of mental health, but also it was something physical with her. Mm-hmm. So right. and it's funny because, mm-hmm. you know, um there I'll read this quote real quick about just pretty much the athletics involved. Um there's an added risk in landing specific type of mounts with or without twists, including a potential landing on the neck. So if you have NBC sports quoting stuff like this, and you have one of your top athletes that's stepping out for something physical, right? Why are you giving her backlash? So essentially it's like, pick a side. Do you want people to take care of their health, whether it's mental health or physical health, right? Or do you want to let them compete as is? I, I don't know. It, it, there's a lot that we have to face as black people. It gets on my nerves so bad to see it happen. And to Alwyn's point earlier, and your point, Isabella, the the, the white man, they just get away with a bunch. Like, mm-hmm. a whole lot. Pierce Morgan wouldn't be coming after whoever else if they weren't a person of color like he did after Simone Biles mm-hmm. with regards to her withdrawing, mm-hmm. in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, yeah. He could kick rocks, but like <laughs> at the end of the day, like you don't like honestly, and like you mentioned, uh, Erica, they call it the twisties. So the twisties is basically a phenomenon with the brain. What happens is that there's a disconnect between the neurons and nerve cells in the brain, and actually what the person is able to physically do. So Simone mm-hmm. was noting that things that she normally could accomplish, she could not accomplish while Teachers. being in competition. So right. what happens is that with neuroplasticity in the brain, over time, these people. Teach- they develop their nerve cells to do certain moves and coordinate it, land mm-hmm. appropriately, know their positional awareness and know where they are when they're competing. And mm-hmm. what happened was that with Simone Biles, she was unable to register that connect between where she was at and what she was trying to do. And so that's mm-hmm. why she got out initially out of uh, com- competing because she knew that she wasn't at her standard. And people got to respect that physiological and physical process. They're not aware that if you're not at the highest level that you can, it's Olympics for God's sake. So right, she, right. she knows that she's, you know, she's doing her due, off. Yeah, her, her due justice for our country, you know what I'm saying, in terms of representing. But if she can't get to where she needs to, then why is she going to like lower the, our ability to accomplish in that in, in, in those fields? You feel me? So it's a respectful mm-hmm. and moral thing for her to do that. And she has grace and integrity to say, hey, I'm not where I need to be. I need to take time. And we talked about this on a lot of uh, past episodes with overtraining syndrome. This happens too, where you train mm-hmm. so much, you get burnt out. And that burnt out, burnout leads to a cycle where you're physically disenabled and is dismantling your connection between your mental state and your physical state. And I mm-hmm. think this is one of those cases and people, they're not aware of that. Why can't athletes feel like they can't accomplish at that particular time? Why we can't respect that? We talk about Naomi Osaka. We talk about Kyrie Irving. He had to right. take a, a mental health break. We talk about these you know, great athletes that are doing every day, they're putting hours and hours on their bodies. On their and bodies. physically, yep. we're not meant to do that. They're right. on a drum. They're on they hide like 24 hours of the day. Most people, they couldn't even do that. Like 30, 25 minutes of the things that they're doing, like right. working out wise. You feel me? Right. So this we, is nine to five. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like for real. Like so the, to the people that's trying to shun her, like really kick rocks. And I always see it like this. Look at the person's environmental factors. Look at the pressures. Look at their mental health circumstances. Like learn who they are as an individual before you say one individual said, oh, she's so selfish. She's immoral. She doesn't want to represent our country. What a waste of 
time. She should never compete in Olympics. Like, who are you? Have you ever even stepped stage on an Olympic stage? Have you ever even trained at the level that she's trained? Like, shout out to Simone, man. Like, keep doing your thing, shouty. Like, we proud of you, and I'm always going to support you. Shout out to Sis Simone, all right? That's That's it. my girl, period. But but on a less positive note, um, we do have to acknowledge uh, the recent assassination of the Haitian president. Who wants to pronounce his name? Alden, I need you to pronounce his name so that way I don't mess it up. Yo, Skenda, don't be mad at me, okay? But his name is, uh, I think, Jovenel Moise, I think. <laughs> I would, <laughs> heard you. I would close heard mine you. with that. <laughs> Jovenel That's, Moise. It sounds right to me because we're not going to mess up a man's name who That's had a such an important role, you know, um, mm-hmm. for Haiti. Um, but on July 7, 2020, uh, the president of Haiti was assassinated by a group of gunmen in his home, uh, home in is it Parallel 5, a district of Petitionville? I think I said Ooh, that right. C'est très bon. <laughs> you know, I took a little bit of French here and there. Chill Ooh. out. You know, I took a little. Yeah, tu parles français? Oui, oui. A little bit. Yeah. I cannot. <laughs> but uh, Moise was shot with 12 bullets in his chest, arms, right leg, and left hip, and he had a shattered left eye. So First Lady Martine Moise was also shot multiple times in the attack, suffering gunshot wounds in her arms and thighs, in addition to severe injuries to her hands and her abdomen. So that is just a really tragic thing to have happened, you know, to a president representing one of the best black countries that exists in this entire world. Um, and it's unfortunate that I don't know. I feel like they talked about it a little, but I feel like, you know, there was represent representation from, you know, Haitian Americans about what happened, but I don't feel like the news really advertised it to that extent, mm-hmm. which I think is really messed up, especially because we know that Haiti has been a country that's gone through a lot in regards to the uh, earthquake and everything that went oh, on with that, man. you know, um, it's a country that America is definitely very much familiar with and has, you know, taken heed to when things have happened, but I just don't, I don't really remember, um, you know, the media giving it its fair justice. I don't know what you guys yeah. think about it. What I feel like what we do know is just about the suspects. Like we always get the stuff that, yeah, it matters, but it doesn't. Right. <laughs> like in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so 18 Colombians and several Haitians and Haitian Americans are connected to the murder and the Haitian police are still seeking others. The suspects included retired Colombian commandos, a former judge, mm-hmm. security equipment salesman, a mortgage and insurance broker in Florida. Y'all. Um, wow. Two commanders of the president's security team. And according to the Haitian police, the elaborate plot revolves around a 63-year-old doctor and pastor, y'all. Mm-hmm. Um, and this person, Christian Emmanuel Sanon, um, who officials say conspired to hire the Colombian mercenaries to kill the president and mm-hmm. seize political power. I think the biggest question, though, like, what does this mean for Haiti's future? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, there's, there's so much that is r- deeply rooted in Haiti's history. Like, how does Haiti come back from this? Right. Um, how do we, I don't know that we can do anything to really help here, but like, what does that look like? moving forward for Haiti. Yeah, it's just this whole situation is just unfortunate and uh, very alarming. Again, like Isabel, like you mentioned, in terms of the media outcry and uh, coverage, there's just not been enough. Um, And and when we talk about Haiti, 59% of people in Haiti live um, below the poverty line, which is one of the highest rates in the world. And then 24% live in a situation of extreme poverty. 
And it's crazy. Only 36% of the population had access to electricity in 2012. And that's increased significantly since then. But I'm saying these stats to say, like, we live in a world where we good, right? I'm here. I'm on the internet. I'm talking to y'all. Like, I got food downstairs. My mom is here. She's chefing up. You know, she got everything. But most people out there, they live in day to day. Most people live on less than $2 a day. And so for their president to be assassinated and create such destabilization already in a a state where they're at is already creating an influx of challenging situations and barriers, right? We know that the political aspect influences things on the lower level in terms of finances, economics, the access to jobs, access mm-hmm. to education. Many of the many of the children in Haiti don't even have a reading level that is uh, to the level that we see in America. You know what I'm saying? Less than 30 mm-hmm. percent of the kids there could read, you know, adequately at their at their age. So um, I think we got to we got to really put our paws on this and really recognize what's going on there. And American, I don't necessarily say we need to directly intervene in terms of, all right, we got to in- help them institute a president. But I feel like we got to put our money where our, like we put money into Israel. Right. Like we put mm, we, we right. bring bread over there. Right. Israel is in a whole nother continent, bro. But we can't at home in the Caribbean help Haiti, who's a country we've taken advantage of. France has taken advantage of. And crazy thing about France is that they demanded reparations, which has indebted the nation. And France, like, how do you, France, you're the one that enslaved, that like took advantage of the economy. Yeah, two, three hundred years. So y'all talking about y'all want reparations for that. And it's crazy how this system affects black people, right? Internationally, locally, the communities all around the world. And we don't talk about it. We 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 got to strategize and connect with the people in Haiti. I know it's uh, they're distant, but I, I feel like we got to understand their plight because it helps us understand what we got going on here. Although mm-hmm. it's it's separate, it's quite unique. But I feel like we we there's a lot to say for the Haitian people. I mean, I was reading an article the other day, and because of the gang violence from the assassination of the president. There's mm-hmm. people that have been displaced from their homes. You know what I'm saying? Like people right. are literally trying. They're at homeless shelters. You have little yeah, children sad. and you know what I'm saying? They mothers and, and fathers like they like we don't know what's going on. We don't even know when we could get back home. So that stability instability influences how people live on a day to day basis. And because we don't see it, if we're not aware of it, then we can't institute the changes that are needed to implement that the necessary uh, upgrowth and um, uh, mobility of the people there. So shout out to the Haitian people and what they're dealing with. I think we we just got to uh, continue to support them in any way we can. So right. I agree. You know, and it's, you know, you mentioned Alden, you know, how there's, you know, kids who are being taken away and like, you know, being in these, you know, um, very in unstable conditions, these scary conditions. And that's the same thing, you know, that kids who are currently under DACA um, are experiencing Mm -hmm. as well. You know, people um, who have come to this country, you know, at a really young age who were not even like aware of the culture of the country that they technically were born in. And then they're not even sure whether or not they have safety, um, or if they're able to be secure in America mm-hmm. because they're undocumented, right? And so DACA has served as this documentation. Um, basically, like under the program, children of undocumented immigrants have been allowed to remain here if they were under 16, when their parents had brought them to the U.S., and if they had arrived by 2007. And so government figures also show that over 90% of DACA participants also have a job. Nearly half mm-hmm. of them are in school, and many don't even speak the language or even, like I said, know the culture of their home countries. So it's this document has really like allowed you know, undocumented um, immigrants to be able to feel more stable and now... There's risk that 
they may not be able to qualify for DACA anymore. And so I don't know, you know, what you, what you guys' thoughts are on, on that uh, situation. Um, so United States, I sure you want to do that because we just had a runner. <laughs> Ask no, them, all right? Because I don't know if they know. <laughs> Luis Rijalba. That's real. Who, who qualified to run for his native Guatemala. He ran for the United States and actually won um, the gold medal. He finished, um, actually finished uh, line second in the 5,000 meter race um, in mm-hmm. the NCAA track and field. But he did win a gold medal. Um, and so... If y'all want to actually execute that, we know that we're putting so many individuals advantage that are part of our culture, are part of our community. And DACA is a great way for us to connect with people who didn't choose to be here. Right. Their parents brought Mm -hmm. them here. And we could talk about the parents on a side note. But these people are accomplishing. They're doing great things and they're highlighting what the American values are, which are sacrifice, which are investment in in your future, which is uh, committing to who you are and being passionate and working hard for the American dream. And I think that they represent something that many people don't even have that when they come from so, so little and they have to work so hard to get to where they need to. They teach us a lesson about ourselves. So those who are already privileged that are here. And so I really respect them and the integrity and the morality that they have for themselves because they come here. They don't complain. There's people that right. don't. Uh, and I'm not saying everyone that's, you know, from this background is working certain jobs but there's people they uh, some of them they work you know what i'm saying they clean bathrooms they sanitation workers they do the jobs oftentimes that we don't necessarily equate to being successful but they right. enjoy it. they come they come work hard they they uh, support their families and they they do what they got to do and right. a lot of people they living on unemployment checks and faking that they got disability these okay, people they okay. not about that you know what i mean okay. and they're not even from this country there's right, people right. taking advantage of us in this country a lot of the DACA people they're not doing that they out here actually promoting the economy and helping it build so it's crazy to me, like how we're not seeing the statistics and how this is supporting who we are as American and the values where, you know what I'm saying? As American. These values. Oh, right. Yeah, I think it's wild because to, I think as you said it, like these children, they didn't ask to be here. Mm-hmm. And right. I just feel like it's, it's our responsibility as Americans, mm-hmm. right? This is what we claim to do. We claim to be the land of the free, the mm-hmm. home of the brave, mm-hmm. like, all these you other know, lies. Well, yep, I know. Right. All, I know all these other <laughs> lies and deceit, girl. Right. But, you know, <laughs> at, least look, at least look out for the children. Right. Um, That's a fact. I just, I have a soft spot for certain populations of people and children are, that's definitely one of my soft spots. Um, yeah. Pete's. Pete's. Cough, cough. But, um, yeah, you know, they deserve, if they're here to get the same education, they should be able to experience the same, um, how do I say it, the same novelties, if you will, the same luxuries. I mean, I know we don't all experience that, but why why negate them? They did mm-hmm. not ask to be here. And mm-hmm. I mean, if you feel like changing stuff, then go back to the Constitution and get things right. Then that's not going to happen. We don't have a, a, a travel time travel to go back and fix right. anything. So let's mm. just exist how we exist and look out for those that come here. Right. That's it. That's it. That's all. Aldwin. Anything else to add? I, lo- I really that, loved in- listening to you on that. You really got passionate. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, not me. <laughs> not really me. Did. Not no me. Be, because honestly, I know from living in the South Bronx, I know a lot of um, people who have benefited from DACA, and I see their growth. I see what they've accomplished. And obviously, I'm not going to shout out who they are. I wish I could, but at the end of the right. day, is is just when you're personalizing that whole experience and how they're committed to what they're doing and how that inspires mm-hmm. you as a person. It's just beautiful to witness and behold, despite their challenges, despite, like we mentioned, many of them, this is not their native language, but they persisted. They prevailed. There's people, on the other hand, on my block that they've been here five, six generations and, and they ain't the same, they ain't do nothing. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it's crazy. They, I'm just being honest. It's true. So, even so, real even our real. peers, right? right. Like yeah. our, our peers in medical school, like think mm-hmm. of how many of them are actually benefiting mm-hmm. and like th- these are talented individuals. Very so. much so. Very much so. I don't so. know. Um, but on to, on to something else that now this is a oh, sweet spot for me, y'all. I love mm-hmm. this stuff right I here. I know. So, Resident dermatologist. Okay. One day, one day hopefully, praise the Lord. So <laughs> July, although we are now in August, July was... UV Awareness Month and mm-hmm. listen, black people, people of color, y'all gotta protect your skin. Period. You need a skincare yeah. regimen and you need to use sunscreen at all times. So mm-hmm. with regards to the importance of protecting yourself from UV rays, so as we know, UV radiation is a significant risk factor for a number of things from melanoma, UV induced melanomas and squamous cell carcinomas have actually been found in people of color with a wide variety and range of complexions. So like everybody, y'all need to be out here protecting your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I don't know about you is I'm trying to stay youthful. Period. Okay. Uh, what about me? Excuse me. Y'all want me to drop the skincare regimen? Because I can. Okay. In fact, drop it in the group chat. I'm going to give a shout out to this one brand that I have literally like at this point, I've thrown away everything else I've used and I've just stick, stuck to them and my skin has been doing wonders. This is someone, this is coming from somebody who's literally dealt with eczema since I was a baby. So wow. okay. my skin yeah. is like, I mm. don't play with my skin, right? Because once it hits mm. winter time, there's yeah, a big crazy. chance I get my mm-hmm. flare ups and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I always try to prevent that. Um, mm-hmm. But Sarah Medics, like Sarah, C-E-R-A, Med X E X mm-hmm. right not just X they I everything their uh, <laughs> facial uh uh what's it called facial cleanser their facial lotion their body lotion their body wa- everything and my skin has never been happier I love them I love it yeah so I would definitely say and of course sunscreen don't forget sunscreen I'm a big uh, fan of Black Girl sunscreen they've done wonders for me as well um. Mm-hmm. I would say that your skin is very much a reflection of like actually what goes on inside of your body. Right. So you do have to be very much like cognizant of like, you know, monitoring like what is going on with your skin. Right. Like usually if there's something wrong with it, there might be something wrong internally. So you definitely want to be people kind of downplay your skin just saying, oh, I'm black. I got melanin. I'm good. I'm not going to burn. Like I don't deal with these things. But you have to realize that like because we're darker, actually, it's harder for us to notice what, when there is something wrong with our skin. So we actually need to be more, you know, um, like safe and like playing it it's more true. safe with what we choose to use because it's not that easy for, we don't just, we don't turn red and, and green and blue when something right. happens to us. We stay black. So we got to, no, you know, true. be cognizant of like what's going on. Um, yeah. I so I, I would definitely say I'm a big proponent of skincare all the way. 
Yeah, and skin cancers and people, persons of color, like it doesn't show up the same. Like right. we're less diagnosed than right. white people are. So right. we also end up with a worse prognosis because a lot of times you just don't know. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I think there's such a big push from a lot of black derms right now. Mm-hmm. Um and just different organizations, for example, the Skin uh, Skin Cancer Foundation cited two studies. So one that found an average five-year melanoma survival rate of 67% in um, Black patients as opposed to 92% in white patients. That's mm-hmm. that's way less. Like, right. imagine if right. we actually were in these offices and taking care of our skin. And then another showed the late stage melanoma diagnosis to be more common in Hispanic and black patients versus white patients. So That's um, fun. I do want to shout out and this is not an endorsement at all. Uh, none of what we've been discussing in terms of product lines are an endorsement, but a personal shout out um, mm-hmm. for a skincare line that I love that has an amazing sunscreen uh, malay skincare which mm. was actually co-created with dermatologists of color and i would love to shout out one of my mentors dr diane davis who Ooh. is one of the co-founders she's Lit. a cosmetic dermatologist so love listen that. we out here and we are taking care of our skin you see a glowing Ooh. period and there's other Ooh. ones That's too we mentioned 11 by venus williams you know or black girl tennis queen we gotta mm-hmm. you know shout her out to and another one called biosense mineral sunscreen so uh, like erica mentioned these are not sponsored um but we just want to make sure that we shout out these uh sunscreen brands that are definitely made with us in mind right because we know a lot of these mm-hmm. sunscreens are not made with us in mind you put it At on all. you got a white cast that makes white cast i like a mug Look like Casper out here when you're trying right. to protect your skin. And that, we're not going for Casper. We're going for translucent. We're going for glow. Okay. So we're going for glow. Like your TMs. <laughs> Make them translucent. <laughs> Alwyn, what's, what, what's your skincare, Alwyn? Since we're on the topic, we might yeah. as well. Right. You got a skincare regimen? It better not be the three I, in one. I don't want to hear no three in one, Alden. Nah. <laughs> I, used to, <laughs> I used to be mad basic, man. Like, nah, I don't really got to. I ain't going to lie to you. Like, I really need to. To get on the skincare wave. So I really appreciate that. I know a lot of people in the SNMA family, they probably are not too aware. And as it pertains to black men, I feel like actually I'm interested in starting a black men skincare line and things of that nature. But anyway, mm-hmm. I think it's important that we discuss this and we, I, I, it's just, it's unfortunate that there's not enough telling the truth and realities of this. When you see melanoma, obviously we talked about this in the past, you see it on white skin, but you never see it on black skin. Like last week was the last first time I seen Lyme disease, the actual, you know what I'm saying? Like pinpoint mm. with the central clearing on a black woman, you know? So mm. it's just interesting. Like when we talk about these issues, are the black community got to stand up and really recognize that it don't just affect white people, it's black people too. If you're in the sun enough, you will get melanoma. You can get skin cancer. That's Our true. melanin does protect protect us but it also you know what i'm saying is it ain't absolute we right. but our skin is a our skin is love our skin is love you know, it's, love it's, beautiful. But, it's beautiful but yeah y'all, y'all putting me on to the skincare so um i'm gonna let y'all know how that go you know what i mean so i'll be looking forward to it for sure yeah. we glowing baby we glowing <laughs> and I mean, it's August, so we still got a whole month of summer left, y'all. It's not nowhere near cuffing season yet, so get that Uh-oh. sunscreen going so you get your yes, skincare ma'am. going for the for the fall months to come. 
And that is Run the List. To share your opinions on any of the topics we discussed, email podcast at snma.org and we may read them on the next episode. Now we will be discussing palliative care with our dear Aldwin and our guests, Dr. Cardinal Smith and Dr. Grace Slater. Yes, sir. What's good, everybody? Hello, everyone. And thanks again for tuning into the SNMA Presents The Lounge. I am student doctor Aldwin, and I am glad to have the opportunity to interview two amazing individuals today. Woo, they are the livest. I'm excited to know about palliative care. But before we start, I would like to introduce our guest. First off is Dr. Cardinal Smith, MD, PhD. She is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology and Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She holds many administrative positions, including Chief Quality Officer for Oncology, Director of the Supportive Oncology Program, and Associate Director for Community Outreach and Engagement at the Tisch Cancer Institute. Dr. Smith is an active clinician in both oncology and palliative medicine. In addition, she's an active health services researcher at the intersection of oncology and palliative care, emphasizing minority populations. Second guest is Dr. Grace Slater, who received her medical training at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Peoria, Illinois, and completed her pediatric residency at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She began her pediatric hospital medicine fellowship at UPMC's Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh in the summer of 2019. Dr. Slater is an upcoming UPMC Pittsburgh Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellow. So I wanna say thank you guys for pulling up. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We are excited to learn about palliative medicine. We are excited to be engaged in this conversation that is oftentimes uh, missed in our communities, in minority groups, and let's get to it. Let's learn about this. Let's create dialogue and discussion. So without further ado, I wanna say Dr. Slater and Dr. Smith, we give you a round of applause, let's go. Yeah. So to begin, many individuals confuse hospice with palliative care. So we wanna make sure our audience is aware of the differences. Could you perhaps define it first for us and provide a brief explanation as to why you chose your chosen subspecialty? Uh, Dr. Slater, you can go first. Sure, I'd love to. Um, thanks so much for having me. I'm really um, excited about um, this area of medicine. So the difference for me between hospice and palliative care is palliative care is really about making the best of your life, even if it is um shortened from what we would expect. And hospice is making the path towards death comfortable um, and being prepared to meet that um, when it comes into our lives, um, as it does for everybody. My area of specialty is obviously pediatrics, which means I deal a lot with kids. And the reason that I um, became interested in hospice and palliative care in the pediatric world is because of my deep love of hospital medicine. Um, so there is a growing population of 
pediatric patients that um, have these very complex medical histories. And um, the more that medicine grows and its ability to um, prolong life and to do amazing things, we also see that there is um, a creation of this new category of patients that is really growing. Um, with complex medical needs um, and multiple um, comorbidities and shortened life expectancies. And so um, it's amazing that medicine can keep these kids alive and well for as long as it has, but there is also this end that we know is coming earlier than what we would expect. Um, and it's a population that doesn't have a lot of expertise um, until just recently. And being a hospitalist and having this um, interest in complex care um, and kids with complex medical needs um, and helping families along the journey of figuring out how to make the most of these kids' lives is really um, where I found a purpose. Um, and I found a lot of joy in coming and walking alongside these families for however short or long their children's lives may be and providing support um, and increasing those kids' quality of life. And that is what led me to uh, pursue a fellowship in hospice and palliative care. So, I mean, I would say I look at um, I look at palliative care as sort of the larger umbrella, um, in that it is uh, specialized medical care that aims to um, uh, treat symptoms um, and relieve suffering for patients who are living with serious illness, um, and to help support their families or caregivers. Um, you know, it's given by an interdisciplinary team of clinicians that include physicians, nurses, advanced practice providers, spiritual care, social work, um, and other, other integrative team members as well. Um, you know, I chose palliative care as a subspecialty. Um, I sort of came to it, mm, I don't, I don't know, sort of a circuitous route, I guess. I um, was a medicine intern and I knew I was going to go into oncology. And I had a patient experience where it was a gentleman with uh, with metastatic prostate cancer. Um, and he had been in the hospital for really significant pain related to bone metastasis, so cancer that had spread to his bones. And he Every day I would go in the room and he would say, you know, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? And there was just this incredible amount of suffering. And I didn't know how to respond other than to say, you know, we'll get you through this. You know, we will get you on a pain regimen that will help you. And we called in the palliative care consult team to help manage his pain symptoms. And I happened to be in the room when the physician came in and the physician simply said, wow, it sounds like you're really suffering. Tell me tell me what's really, what's worrying you the most when you think about your cancer and your future. And that was an aha moment for me. I, I had never really experienced anyone speaking to a patient in that way in my own medical career. And so I knew if I was going to be an oncologist, I had to be an oncologist who had those skills um, and could communicate and care for patients in that way. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Both of you work with underserved populations, one with pediatric patients, 
And of course, um, understand the fact that medicine um, requires us to communicate and connect with a diverse array of, of individuals. But specifically speaking about when we talk about hospice medicine and hospice patient care, according to the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, in 2018, about 82% of hospice patients were white, compared to 8.2% for African-Americans and 6.7% for Hispanics. What are some of the factors that contribute to the racial disparities in palliative care among minority patients? And second, how do you think the SDOH plays a part in the fact that Black Americans use less advanced care planning than white Americans? Dr. Smith, you can go first. Sure. So, you know, hospice is sort of one component of palliative care that is care that's given at the end of life. And we happen to have a, a, a definition for hospice care, which um, is regulated by Medicare. So it essentially says that um, if a patient with a serious illness like cancer, for example, has a prognosis of an estimated prognosis of six months or less, they're eligible to go on hospice um, and they sort of forgo any illness, any any in, can, in the case of cancer, any cancer-directed treatment, for example. So really the focus is on, on supportive care. Um, and, you know, I think that there are a multitude of factors that contribute to this. You know, the hospice benefit, um, which came about, you know, through policy, was created by a certain set of individuals who believed that there is a certain norm around how people want to approach the end of their life. Um, and we know that that's not the way everyone approaches the end of life. Not everybody wants to die in their home. Not everyone has resources to be able to be to be maintained and to remain comfortable in their home outside of the services the hospice can provide. And even more, not everybody has a caregiver who's able to be present with someone and really help them um, with whatever symptoms they may need or whatever other support that they may need. And so I think when hospice was created, hospice wasn't created with those you know, structurally marginalized groups in mind to think about how they would want to accept care or what care um, what they would need, what sort of culturally competent and relevant care should be given to them. Yeah, I agree. I think that there are so many different cultures when you talk about a race um, within one particular um, color of skin. There's so many different ways that people function as a family unit. Um, and that looks different even when it comes to death for different um, populations and different minorities. Um, I think that in my family, uh, the approach to where um, somebody should die or would be comfortable dying is, is very different from the common um, maybe perceived notions of how society feels like um, people should or want to have the environment be around them when they die. And so I think that it really comes down to people are so diverse and so different, even within the same 
color of skin or culture. And that has to be taken into account when we, even when we look at the time period surrounding death. And it really should be an ask of every patient of what they picture and what their desire is for that time and that setting. Um, And I think that currently our population has a very fixed picture of what that should look like. And we need to be a little bit more open about um, just providing the space for people to have different opinions of how they want their at uh, the end of their life um, or their life leading up to the end of their life to look like. Yes. I think, uh, you know, you both hit the mark and, and Dr. Slater is certainly important to cultivate that dialogue um, between your patients and allow them to have that autonomy to make the decisions that they think are best appropriate for themselves and their family at the end of the day. Now we talked about palliative care and racial disparities from an overall overarching theme, but we know that the pandemic has cultivated and actually accentuated a lot of racial disparities and it's, it's done a tremendous impact and created a tremendous burden, particularly on the Black and Latino population. What influences has the pandemic had on palliative care for the minority community and individuals with terminal illnesses from your perspectives? Uh, Dr. Smith, you can go first. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the pandemic was hard on, on all of us. Um, and particularly those groups who um, are already on the fringes. Um, You know, I think, so I'm going to start with the silver lining of COVID, um, because I I like to think that there have been some. Um, You know, if anything, I think uh, the importance and the role that palliative care played, particularly among admitted patients with COVID-19, Um, was really tremendous. And, you know, I am in New York where we were one of the initial epicenters and our palliative care services were uh, definitely required and in need. Um, You know, in fact, we happen to have hotlines on the weekends to be able to get to expert palliative care. Um, And I like to think that that sort of brought the importance of specialty palliative care to the forefront And has also, I see this shift. So we have this terminology where we talk about specialty palliative care, and those are those clinicians whom have done expert training in the palliative medicine, palliative care fellowship. Um, And then there's primary palliative care. um, And those are sort of, you know, frontline clinicians like an oncologist, for example, who has palliative care skills to be able to take care of the daily needs of their cancer patients, pain, anxiety, you know, basic communications, et cetera. And I think what this has taught the healthcare system in general is that these skills, these primary palliative care skills are really important for all clinicians, um, not just specialty palliative care clinicians. And I think by being able to both educate Um, the primary clinicians with whom patients have the most interactions with, you know, we will hopefully be improving the care for, you know, the minority community and for minority folks who happen to have serious illness. 
Um, I also think that it has brought to the forefront a conversation around advanced care planning and why it's important to talk about your wishes or at least share your wishes with your loved ones um, so that, uh, uh, you know, if you're ever, if you ever have a serious illness or you land in the hospital, um, you know, someone knows what the care is that you would like to have received. So I think that some of the most, so obviously I didn't get to experience uh, the palliative care side as deeply, um, seeing as while COVID was happening and up until now, I have been a pediatric hospital medicine fellow, but we do have some overlap in, um, there are some families that choose to um, not have their loved ones, um, including their children at home during um, the end of life care. And I have gotten to take care of a few patients who have been in long-term care facilities as uh, during this COVID-19 um, pandemic. And I think that one of the things that has struck me the most is that um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, families have not been able to see their loved ones um, in these long-term care facilities. And the increased amount of stress and grief that has built on an already stressful and grieving time for the general population, but this past year in, in particularly has been hard on minority populations, especially the African-American and Black population. Um, just given cultural events that have been going on, I think that um, for me to see the increased amount of stress and grief on those families um, to have not been able to see their their loved ones for a year, and then to be seeing them when we were withdrawing care or providing end of life care only for a couple of hours or days was it was heartbreaking it was really devastating to see the effects that um no one could have foretold or foreknown at the beginning of the COVID 19 pandemic yeah i can't even imagine from a pediatric perspective um just seeing you know families like you mentioned not being able to 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 be around their children or other family members how that you know can cause a, a disastrous effect as we as we talk about mental health issues and we talk about creating a connectiveness um, with the pandemic you know social isolation was that certainly a huge factor even for me personally I've known uh, several individuals whose family members uh, ended up dying in the hospital all alone and uh, the, the amount of pain and uh, such a negative impact and turmoil that caused uh, I mean I, I can't even imagine but Seeing how um, for you, uh, this question goes to both of you, but um, Dr. Slater, um, you're going into palliative medicine as a, after doing a pediatric hospitalist. Um, one of the main things we see in medical school is that we don't have enough diversity as, a, as it pertains to our rotations, even for me personally. You know, there are so many fields I didn't even get to experience, ophthalmology, radiology. You know, we do the standard internal medicine, OBGYN, but... I've not had any exposure to palliative medicine, and I don't think I know of any other students in my class that did personally. But what can we do to diversify the palliative medicine workforce? 
uh, we see that it's, it became a medical subspecialty in 2008, and the field has grown to include 7,618 board-certified palliative care medicine uh, physicians. And I might be one of them one day. I don't know. Y'all, y'all talking real right. You know, I might join the crew. <laughs> but um, what do you think are some things that we can do to increase the, the amount of particularly minorities in palliative medicine? Yeah, I think you're right. I actually didn't get exposure to palliative uh, medicine until I was in my pediatric residency. Um, and so it was something that I had no idea about when I was a medical student. Um, I think that like for so many things, um, representation is really important. And in order to diversify a workforce, you really have to start with the pipeline. And so I think early exposure um, to palliative medicine is a really effective way to kind of help people see how the skills of palliative care can not only apply um, in the great communication techniques that you learn in palliative care, they apply off of uh, across a, a wide board of, of specialties. And I feel like um, some of the most powerful palliative care doctors I've seen are doctors who are not just um, focused on solely palliative care, but have some sort of other training. So you often see um, our hemonc doctors um, in palliative care with an added palliative care fellowship. Um, one of the palliative care doctors that I worked with in my pediatric residency was actually trained um, just as a pediatrician, did a bunch of outpatient pediatrician work, and then uh, became involved in palliative care after he had retired from being a pediatrician for most of his career. And so I think that it's a specialty that really draws on um, compassion and great communication and early exposure to those skills are going to help physicians in any area uh, that they choose to go into but also it will help to create a greater exposure and to kind of increase the awareness of palliative care as a specialty. And so um, I love that SMNA is is doing so uh, many initiative things to look at um, exposing um, minority students to a larger breadth of of specialties than the more common specialties. There's also great work being done um, by a lot of palliative care doctors, including um, the University of Pittsburgh here. There's um, a grant and a um, and a uh, internship that um, medical students can come and be a part of the palliative care um, rotation here. And so I think that there is groundwork being laid to kind of make an avenue for a diverse amount of minorities to come into um, the specialty. But I do really think it starts with the pipeline. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And, and I, and I would expand on that um, to say that I, I agree with both of you. I certainly am probably, I'm clearly not probably clearly older than both of you. Um, I graduated medical school in 2003, and I certainly didn't have any exposure or experience with palliative medicine when I was a student. Um, and I'm encouraged that we are going to be recruiting you on this call and hopefully others who are listening to this podcast because I would argue that palliative medicine as a field is 
is certainly one of the most rewarding. In fact, I most recently had a student say to me, um, wow, this is what I always thought medicine was supposed to be. Um, I'm not knocking any fields, right? I'm also an oncologist. Um, and I think that there's something really rewarding about being in this field. Um, you know, I do think that there are several really intentional things that we can do um, to help build that pipeline. I think one is that we should have our medical students have, um, you know, mandatory rotations within palliative care. So here at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, um, all of our third-year medical students during their geriatrics rotation, they have a week of palliative care, a week of palliative care rotation. And, you know, certainly one week is not enough, but it is an exposure to a field that you otherwise would not have exposure to. Um, and so I think when we think about, you know, the accreditation of medical schools, making that be mandatory is something that we should be considering. Um, I also, you know, there is this bill that is sort of being stalled within Congress. It's called the Palliative Care and Hospice Education and Training Act, or PACHITA. Um, and it really includes a lot of money um, for not just research, but to be able to to pay medical schools and institutions to hire palli specialty palliative care clinicians to be able to do the education we're talking about. It also includes money for loan forgiveness, um, you know, which is something that at least for me, I know when I graduated from medical school, would have been really nice to know that that is out there somewhere waiting for me um, instead of the, you know, looking at the $200,000 that I have to, had to pay back. Um, and I think when we think about pipeline programs, you know, our academy, the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine has mentorship opportunities um, for those who are interested um, in going into the field and being connected to a mentor. You know, you may not have, we don't have enough specialty palliative care folks in the workforce. And so if someone happens to be at an institution or a medical school where maybe they don't have um, the mentorship that they would need, that's a connection to get you connected to someone and to give you the ability to come to the national meeting um, so that, you know, that can be on your CV and can help you as you look into getting into residency programs. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think focusing on all of those things are really what we need to diversify this workforce. That's it. You heard it here first. Palliative medicine is the way to go. And we have our two <laughs> wonderful guests. You know, we'll get their contact information, but SNMA fam, definitely check out palliative care. It's definitely a wonderful feel as we have uh, talked about, discussed, and learned about during this podcast episode. Now, um, in late February, the House and Senate introduced the Telehealth Modernization Act. This act was introduced in the House and Senate in late, late February, and the bill extends certain flexibilities that were initially authorized during the public health emergency re related to COVID-19. It calls for action to expand telehealth services used for hospice permanently and seeks the permanent expansion of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Temporary waivers on geographic and site-related restrictions. Two, the Leveraging Integrated Network in Communities to Address Social Needs Act of 2021 was also introduced to Senate on March 1st, 2021. This act would give states funding to facilitate better coordination of care regarding social determinants of health, SDOH for short. 
In addition, this legislation aims to create a program to help states build or improve community integration network infrastructures for health and social services. So I just wanted to give it background, SNMA fam, before we get into this question so you guys do know what we're talking about. But in regards to both of these acts, how do you believe these bills will help to reduce the telehealth disparities that minorities confront as they walk through the palliative or hospice care practice? Dr. Slater. Yeah, I think that um, telemedicine is actually a really nice resource that was really underutilized before the pandemic. Um, One of the um, ways that um, hospice um, and palliative medicine um, could benefit from continued support of telehealth services is that it makes televisits and visits where you can actually see a provider and a provider can see you without actually leaving the home. So you can imagine that some people, especially people with complex care needs and a lot of need for medical support um, items, it can be very hard for them to get up and travel to a clinic appointment or to a hospital. And so having the ability to um, be able to, as a physician, have a broader list of patients that you can see because home visits are wonderful, but you have a lot of time lost that's driving from home to home. And home visits are still gonna be necessary to some extent, but imagine that you can expand the patients that you can interact with um, and visit with and care for um, by twice as many because you are eliminating the time it takes to drive to do home visits. It's an amazing opportunity to increase the amount of interactions that hospice and palliative care patients can have with their physicians um, and a very easy way to make something that that might feel impersonal like a phone call to be much more personal when you can see um, the provider that you're actually talking to. And so I think that expanding and continuing to expand health telehealth services is going to be an excellent thing for for the hospice and palliative care community. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with all of that and that telehealth is certainly an added benefit, especially when we think about certain rural communities or patients with serious illness in whom, um, you know, mobility is an issue. Um, I think how much what these acts will will help with, I think, remains to be seen. The devil, as they say, is always in the details. Um, you know, it is one thing to expand telehealth services and um, allow us to be able to see patients across state lines um, or to expand the reimbursement for telehealth services. But it's a completely different thing to make sure patients have uh, both the access to, you know, broadband enabled devices, um, as well as access to broadband data, which even in a place like New York City, which is, a, you know, an urban environment, and you wouldn't think that, you know, we don't have the same sort of broadband deserts as might exist in more rural communities, but there still is a dearth of broadband access, um, particularly in minority communities. Um, and so I say, 
you know, that it, it can't, it has to be both. It has to be expanding that access um, so that we can reach more people. And it has to be addressing those social determinants of health so that we, one, we know and we're documenting who has what, and then we're able to connect those folks to the kinds of services that they need to really breach that digital divide. So we talked about with these acts, an increase in accessibility and awareness. As you both mentioned, uh, telehealth has definitely been a benefit to so many patients in, in so many fields, in, in particular palliative care, in increasing uh, the opportunities to uh, uh, increase the scope of practice that you all can engage in. Um, with that being said, what are ways in which we can eliminate the discrepancies in hospice and palliative care for minorities? And what are some of the initiatives that we can engage in to do such things? Um, so I would say, well, first is awareness, right? I mean, I think most people would know if they feel like they're having chest pain or a heart attack that they would call a cardiologist. I don't know that most people with serious illness would know to call a palliative medicine physician. So, and I think that there, there still is a sort of a misconception about what palliative care is and what hospice is. So that, you know, with palliative care, you continue to get all of your serious illness care. Um, and with hospice, you are focusing on supportive care only and not getting concurrent serious illness care like for cancer. Um, and so, you know, I think that there has to be some work in getting this message out to those communities. I think partnering with faith-based organizations, partnering with other community-based organizations who, um, you know, have both inroads and relationships with those communities uh, to let them know that this is okay, that this is acceptable, um, to encourage dialogue around palliative care principles like advanced care planning. Um, I also think when we talk about um, sort of eliminating some of these challenges that exist, you know, there's also a system issue here so that for patients who are living with, with pain, for example, um, we know that pharmacies in predominantly minority communities are less likely to stock adequate opioids, um, pain medications for patients. And so, you know, you can't expect people to be able to treat their serious illness if they can't access the, 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 the medications that they need. Um, and so I think there has to be a critical look at what are these policies that we have put in place um, from a sort of systems lens that has helped contribute to some of these differences. Yeah, I definitely agree that we really need to focus on better understanding of what palliative care and hospice is as a specialty. I think that the most common question that I get when people ask what I do and I explain that I'm going into a hospice and palliative care fellowship, they're like, oh, what's that? Are you gonna work at a nursing home? And, and so it, it really is, there's like really this misconceived notion and total um, lack of understanding about what the specialty is as a whole. And I think that, um, we have a lot, as people have a lot of fear when it comes to thinking or talking about um, end of life care or care that admits that 
there is going to be an end at some point, right? And so I think that that really opening up the conversation and bringing this conversation to the forefront and making it a lot more commonplace is going to be important to raise awareness. Um, And I also think that representation matters, right? We can't be scared um, to be part of a small population of minority doctors in the field, right? Somebody has to go first and I am so honored to follow amazing doctors like Dr. Smith, who obviously has been a forerunner for minorities in this field. And so I um, admit that there's still disparities in the um, population of palliative care doctors, that there's not as many brown-skinned African-American or Black um, or Latino or um, other types of um, diversity that we would love to see in hospice and palliative care. But I think we're we're moving in that direction. But we can't um, be scared to be the people who lay the groundwork and be the people who step into this kind of land of the unknown and support that growing diversity. Yes, diversity and representation certainly matter. Um, For that pre-med student or that medical student that's listening in right now and is saying, man, palliative care is a bomb.com. I'm I'm all with it and I want to learn more. Or for that individual that just wants to engage with it and wants to learn more about it in regards to their family members or if they're put into that position to make such decisions. What are your final thoughts you would like to impart upon the audience and our SNMA fam? in regards to what we discussed today? And second, how can our listeners connect with you? Dr. Slater, I'll let you go first. Sure. Uh, So I think that for me, the biggest thing that I would say is to explore doing a rotation in palliative medicine. There are so many benefits to just exposing yourself to different fields of medicine and what they offer to patients, but what they also what they can offer to you as a well-rounded doctor and individual. And the I am so excited to increase my communication skills and and be a part of this um, community and family that really focuses on making people's lives better. Um, And I cannot say enough for how much fulfillment and how much joy I find in being with these doctors who care for such um, serious patients with such serious illnesses and um, how much that has made me grow as a person and also as a physician. Um, And I cannot wait for all of the folks who are going to join us um, in the amazing work that's being done in hospice and palliative care. I um, am on um, quite a few social media accounts. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Grace Slater. Um, And then if people want to get in contact with me um, uh, to hear a little bit more about my experiences and how I got into palliative care, they're also welcome to email me um, at my um, UPMC email, which is um, M-U-G-A-N-D-A-G-N at upmc.edu.
Yeah, and I want to thank Dr. Slater for her her lovely comment to me. Um, thank you. I look forward to meeting you in person one day. Um, I I think that um, if folks want to get any information about palliative care for their own family or loved ones, um, there's a website called getpalliativecare.org, which has a list of palliative medicine physicians throughout the country. Um, you can also go to um, the Center to Advance Palliative Care or CAPC.org if you want to get some more information about palliative care itself. And then uh, if you want to reach me at all, I also have a Twitter handle. I'm at Cardi Smith. That's uh, C-A-R-D-I Smith pretty easy. Um, and if you want to reach out and email, I am cardinal.smith. So that is C-A-R-D-I-N-A-L-E dot smith at mssm.edu. And I would be more than happy to talk to anyone about mentorship, about other information um, around getting into the field, um, research, quality opportunities, you name it, open door. Well, there you have it, Dr. Slater and Dr. Smith. I just want to say thank you again for taking your time out to chat with us and to discuss palliative care and as well as diversity in palliative care and medicine. This has been a wonderful and terrific experience, and I know that uh, the SNMA fam is going to be thrilled to learn more about this very innovative and very important field of medicine, which we need to increase our awareness, we need to increase acceptability, and we need to increase advocacy, particularly for minorities in our Black community. So shout out to y'all. Continue being legends. Continue representing. We'll see y'all at the top. SNMA fam, have a good day. Much love. One love, baby. Thank you to our guest speakers, Drs. Cardinal Smith and Grace Slater, for sharing their journeys into palliative care and the importance of diversity in palliative care medicine to better serve individuals, particularly individuals of color, on difficult conversations surrounding end-of-life care. Now, we'll be moving into a discussion about the Flexner Report, financial literacy within the Black community, and how white supremacy has negatively impacted the progress of Black individuals within the United States in these two spheres. So, starting with the Flexner Report, this report was submitted in 1910 by Abraham Flexner with the backing of the Carnegie Mellon Foundation and was intended to serve as a guideline to what medical education in North America should look like. Prior to this report, medical education was unregulated in the U.S., largely in the form of proprietary trade schools that were unaffiliated with a college or university, and there was no standardized curriculum. Using John Hopkins as the ideal model for what a medical school should look like, claiming that it was the one bright spot of medical education in the U.S., Flexner made the following recommendations. To reduce number of medical schools from 155 to 31. Increase the prerequisites necessary to enter medical training. Train physicians to practice in a scientific manner and engage medical faculty in research give medical schools control of the clinical instruction in hospitals, and strengthen state regulations of medical licensure. Proprietary schools were encouraged to close or be incorporated into existing universities. As a result of these recommendations, medical education was quickly streamlined and curricula standardized. The quality of the average physician increased significantly as well. 
1904, prior to the report, there were 160 MD-granting institutions. By 1935, more than half of all schools merged or closed, with a total of 66 medical schools remaining. Of the historically Black medical schools, only Howard and Meharry were left open, while five other schools included in the report closed. In the meantime, the remaining medical schools would not admit women or Black physicians for years after the report, and the effects of this are still felt today. Yeah, I mean, I think that this report, Mm -hmm. uh, huh? Like, and (laughs) it speaks to the reason why we have such a stark shortage of, you know, black people pursuing Mm -hmm. medicine. I mean, what? How do you have seven and it goes, what is it, six or seven black Mm -hmm. medical schools and it goes down to just two that are left, Howard and Meharry? You know, I think that that's really... um, that's really concerning and it just and I think it really explains why we've had such a shortage of um, black people pursuing medicine. And you know, I also think we have to talk about the American Medical Association in, in terms of what have they done to actually redress this harm that's been done through the mm-hmm. Flexner report. Um, JAMA did release an article that's entitled uh, Projected Estimates of African American Graduates of Closed Historically Black Medical Schools. And they go into um you know, how the shortage of black men in medicine has continued to remain slow since these closings of the um, HBCU medical schools, you know, and they kind of go in and discuss it. You know, with JAMA, I still have my, you know, my little pick with yeah. JAMA, but, mm-hmm. eh, you know, I think that uh, it was important and I think it was useful that they, you know, they brought uh, up a topic concerning this because that is super important i think that we'd like to say oh there's not enough black people in medicine because they just don't want to do it or they you know or they just you know think that it's too hard or whatever and we don't talk about all of these historic like just imagine if we had all those same hbc medical schools open to today like listen how, how many more black medical you know do, how many more black physicians would we have you know it, it's I'm, crazy uh, i'm over here looking at this list so I'm being educated in Mm -hmm. this very moment, and I don't know that many even were aware of the schools that existed. You had Flint Medical College, Mm -hmm. Knoxville Medical College, Mm -hmm. Leonard Medical School, Louisville National Medical College, and University of West Tennessee. So if you consider like these areas, the populations obviously were Black, right? right? And to your point, how many more doctors? I mean, I, as a HBCU graduate, I would have loved to have more options of applying to schools here. I'm a Caribbean That's medical a student. And, right. you know, a number of us, listen, everybody doesn't go to a U.S. med school. It's just, it is what it is. Right. But seeing this man like can we get these schools back up and running like what does that take like that's where my mind is at right now um but it's unfortunate and i mean underrepresented minorities in medicine like imagine what that could do for like academic medicine for example um because i think all all of us went to hbcus at one point in time right Mm -hmm. yes we all did so just think think back to and I know a, a number of our listeners may not have attended, but there's just something about going to a black college That's a fact. and being educated by your own. I tell people this all the time. Like it just, it gives you something like right. this, 
It's like this fire that literally does not stop burning. It right. might go might go down a little bit. You might have to throw a little gasoline on it, something. <laughs> and that's where homecoming comes in or that's where your network comes in. Right. But you always feel like I can do this. Imagine if we had more opportunities to be educated in institutions that were our own again. Right. Yeah, you know what's crazy? And also in the article, they estimated and projected that between 10 and 30,000 additional black physicians would have been, would have graduated and be in place. There's your your primary care shortage. That's it. Yeah. If those schools would have continued to persist. And Abraham Flexner, yeah, I hope you're rolling. Yo, I hope you like kicking rocks and somebody (laughs) slapping you on the side of your bald head. Trash ass. Let me just chill. But anyway, <laughs> actually, yeah, the same. He was born in Louisville, so it's crazy. He closed the HBCU, Louisville Medical College, the yeah. HBCU Medical School, in the same place that he was born at. But I think it's just unfortunate when we know this is the stats, right? It's fourteen percent of the population, five percent of physicians are of color, and it would have been just so dope to like, like, like Erica, you said, have an opportunity to apply to more HBCU medical schools and be connected to that, be in that spirit. Like so many of the students that are in medical school that I know, it's like they've never had that pride, that feeling like when you go mm-hmm. in class and it's like, you know, you're going to see a black PhD, you know, you're going to see a black mm-hmm. doctor. It's guaranteed every day that you step on campus, on site. at least right. at HBCU medical school, from what I experienced, that you'll see a black doctor come across, connect, be like, bro, what's up, sis, what's or doc? Like you just got mm-hmm. that natural energy and that natural flow and vibe and i think that's just a miss and nowadays it's like we go to places oftentimes where we feel segmented and we feel like we don't belong and that imposter syndrome just reigns so strong but if we had the opportunity to be around us because they wanted to segregate segregate us so why not keep us segregated (laughs) you feel me why not keep us in that same position and now you know what i'm saying y'all trying to bring things and mold it together like nah bump that like let 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 us control our destiny. Let us control how we in- interact with the world and what we're trying to accomplish. And they they took that away from us. And I think that we are disillusioned to think that we truly have power right now when we're not working together. We're we're not in the same spaces. Where entrepreneurs, right. black entrepreneurs, black doctors, black lawyers are not in the same room. Right? We working for the man instead of working for ourselves. Which Period. is a community, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? See, all the so you're going on to a great point. You're going on to a great point because we also have to talk about the financial literacy, right? And that gap right. of knowledge that we as Black people and just the mm-hmm. setbacks we've had when it comes to financial literacy. So mm-hmm. historical mm-hmm. policies, you know, have continued and still mm-hmm. continue to prevent Black individuals and families from accumulating wealth at the same rate of white individuals and families. You know, and majority mm-hmm. of wealth in the United States is tied to home ownership. And I know my mm-hmm. buddy Alvin knows exactly what that's about because he just bought a home. And right. he's sure you know, did. And, oh, snap. Thank you. Shout, shout <laughs> yeah, out to Aldi for that because that's not an right. easy feat. And that right. is the first step to establishing generational wealth. Um, but we have all of these historical. Like, um, like mentioned policies such as redlining, uh, the GI Bill, the Homeowners Association Act, monitoring practices, loan sharks, you know, that have been such a big influential aspect of people being able to accumulate wealth in this country that black people have not had access to. So just to give a little bit of context, you know, the GI Bill was created in 1944 for World War II veterans and established low interest mortgage loans, which largely benefited white veterans, something mm-hmm. that not all black veterans were able to speak to or even have redlining. Mm-hmm. Homeowners Loan Corporation created residential security maps of major cities in the United States to show areas that were good financial versus poor financial risks. Predominantly Mm -hmm. white areas were green, 
while areas that were predominantly of color, specifically black neighborhoods, were redlined. As a result, Mm -hmm. many individuals in those areas could not get loans and turned to loan sharks, which mortgaged at extremely high interest rates with negative financial consequences. You know, and this practice also perpetuated segregation as it tied real financial consequences to integration in the form of a neighborhood's rating decreasing. While this is now illegal, there are still social, environmental, and financial consequences of redlining that can still be felt today. So, you know, when we go to a neighborhood and we see, oh, this neighborhood is like filled with black people and no one's ever moved from this neighborhood and we see the white neighborhoods and we're thinking, oh, that's just because, you know, they just decided, you know, that going to this neighborhood would maybe be a better financial Mm-hmm. or an easier financial opportunity for them or maybe that they just don't want to move out like they just they want to stay where they're at and they're not concerned about elevating or or you know going through the uh social mobility or financial mobility when in reality these things have happened from like oh, since yeah. back then when they that's just said true. let's let's put this dividing line as to who can come and who can leave and i think that that's made a lot of black people stuck or feeling mm-hmm. you know that it's harder for them to even get out because these are like literal generational curses that have been placed on them since God knows when. And I think that we have to talk about that. And and before we just want to jump to why somebody is still in the same neighborhood, still in the project, still wherever exactly. we have to talk about, you know, what is even the history, where's the origin of this coming from? Where, where did this all start from? And I think that's just so necessary to unpack. Right. Right. Racism point blank period but yeah no i mean it's it's perfectly facts and then isabella you talking about that like we talk about redlining nowadays when you're in this like you talk about projects living in the hood your property taxes dictate your education the values in terms of the valuables that you get in terms of your resources so if you in an area where it's not necessary you don't look right quite quote unquote it doesn't look nice your property value is going to go down, then your property tax is going to be low. And then so when your kids are going into the education system, they're not going to have access to good teachers, good resources for books. They're not going to have access to, you know, after uh, after school activities. And that's where you find a lot of the issues that we get plagued in in a lot of black communities. And mm-hmm. when you go into white communities, they have all of these resources. And so if that racism already starts then when you're five, six years old. And it's like we don't have any after school programs at the city or the, the actual place that you at, whatever municipality is supporting. They don't got it for you over there. Mm-hmm. So what you do, you're going to be in the streets, you're going to be running around, do ah, then you got the OG whatever teaching you this and that running the street and then you learn it from that and then you just build on and build on and it's generational you know what i'm saying right versus other areas where it's like oh yeah we have basketball camp or we could go into ballet our school supporting us to go to a trip to you know overseas or whatever the case may be they have that opportunity and many people oftentimes in our communities don't and so we got to realize like that's where a lot of those issues come from and stem from and if we don't acknowledge our past and we can't move forward with our future and right. we are ignorant it's 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 ignorance and bliss to say that it's all in due part to our fault it's systematically engaged in each and every day i go back to the bronx and i know there's a lot of my brothers and my homies they doing the same thing because it's not even they for i know they got the opportunity to do so if they have the right people in place to tell them yo this is how you move but if you don't get exposed to it then you are what you see if you see people moving around weight if you see people doing this and that in the streets and you're gonna acclimate to doing that you know what I mean? Right. So we got to change the game in regards to that. And that's why I love being on this podcast and I love this financial literacy game. This showing tips. A lot of things is so important. You know, mm-hmm. I have a question and I might get some pushback for this. And I'm not saying that I get don't it. believe home ownership mm-hmm. is tied to wealth. But do you consider 
the idea that you could become wealthy without being a homeowner. And mm-hmm. I asked, I saw a mm-hmm. post recently on Instagram. Some people don't want to own homes. Mm-hmm. And I think bigger than, I mean, fin- financial literacy encompasses a lot. It's not just home ownership, but um, in terms of how to accumulate wealth and within our community, if you could, I don't know, give three things, what would be like the three things that you would say, here's where you could start, whether it's as a medical student, whether this is a 42 year old Mm -hmm. who just wants to try to better themselves. If it's somebody that's 18 in their freshman year of college, you know, what would be three, uh, three like key performance indicators, if you will, (laughs) for, (laughs) for generating wealth, like three directives. Is that directed toward me or everybody? Um, I'm, I'm saying say you. Uh, let's throw it to Aldwin, Mr. Yeah. Homeowner. We gonna throw it over <laughs> to you. <laughs> I would say I'd always tell people this: like, pay yourself first. Whether it's ten dollars a week or a hundred dollars a week or ten dollars a day, the the fact that matters. We we as a culture, we overspend, right? We are so glamour. There's so much glamorization. We're getting that newest car, that newest whip. Billionaires, millionaires, they don't think like that. They look the same basic way they do. They got the same basic cars because they know frugality is key to creating generational wealth. The more you save, the more that you can invest. You know what I'm saying? The more that you spend, the more that you lose, you know what I'm saying? And lose out on opportunities. So I say pay yourself first and create dividends at the end of the day. And then from there, then you could build other opportunities, for instance, to invest in vending machines or invest in, you know, for instance, buying a car and then using that to rent out to Toro, which is a a car rental app that you could use or get yourself a house and Airbnb out certain spaces and live in there. You know what I mean? So I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the main issues that we find in our community. Like we live day to day, paycheck to paycheck paycheck. As soon as you get that first paycheck, you spending most of the bread on your family or whatever the case may be. And then it's like, oh yeah, let me get some new J's and then let me mm-hmm. get the new product. And you see it oftentimes on IG. It's like, yo, they always glamorizing like the newest thing, Dolce Gabbana or True Religion, whatever the case may be. And that is inst- instantly and intentionally creating that thought process in so many black people in our community instead of saying right. let's save and how about we create our own brand how about i save and then my other man's he saves and then we come together we come with a line and then we promote that at the end of the day mm-hmm. you know what i mean i so, agree that's uh, okay so you gave one yeah is is you give one I, and i'll give one so i like we'll that have three. team okay so so okay. mine would be to teach literacy from when students are in elementary school. Yes. When they can, like, when you know how to count money, when they start, you know, the, I don't know if y'all had these back in the day, there were these little sheets and they showed you like what a penny looked like, what a quarter looked like, what five cents looked like, all the way up to 50 cents. Like from that moment where children are able to recognize what currency looks like, that's when they should start being taught these skills because kids are like sponges and there's certain advanced things that they don't get but I feel like you can start there that would be mine start teaching it at that level like I remember um I think I was in third grade and we actually had to open up a like a banking account and like have like a checkbook I don't know how it was done I'm sure it was through my parents maybe it was like a savings account or like a savings bond something but I remember Mm -hmm. I had to take like a little passport to school it was like an assignment so that that would be mine start in school I think that my tip would be we need to stop having a fear of money um and a fear Mm. of 
of what happens if I lose this money, right? I think that, especially in the black community, a lot of us are afraid to take financial risks out of fear of losing money versus thinking about how we could gain more money, right? So a lot of people don't want to take out that stock. A lot of people don't want to, you know, like Alden did, buy that home. Um, A lot of people don't want to do something that they feel like they could financially lose from um, rather than thinking about you could actually gain and maybe gain a lot more than you even thought you could. So I think it's about trying to have a more healthier relationship with money as a community is our first step, um, or at least one of important steps to gaining financial freedom, knowing that if you do it the right way and if you do it with the, you know, with uh, good intentions that there's no way you could really lose so much that you would be Mm -hmm. in the red, you know? Um, And so I think, yeah, just trying to, redefine what is our relationship with money as a black community the relationship with money i love that yep this was a good talk i'm excited for this uh part with our co-host heading this up pretty much right alwyn I mean, it's a team. It's team, baby. You know, we it's, it's nobody team, but... one. It's three heads together. You know, we the three headed monster. You know what I mean? Heard so. You. So, since we here at SNMA believe that financial literacy is so important, we are starting up as you guys just witnessed the greatness of the financial literacy. You feel me? Where we're going to discuss things regarding our community, regarding how could you become financially independent? Liberation is key, right? We have to emerge from the trenches in order for us to own, build power. You feel me? We have to learn how to negotiate contracts. We got to learn how to acknowledge that we got a lot of high student debt ratio. How do we kind of emerge with that knowledge base and learn how to promote ourselves and the culture in the world, despite all the financial obligations we have. And oftentimes in medical school, they don't teach us none of this stuff. Oftentimes in residency, they tell you, be an employee, work your butt off 80 hours a week, and then you come out of there and then you don't even know how to balance your checkbook, or you don't even know how to you know, invest this and that, or you don't even know how to work the stock market, or you don't even mm-hmm. know how to connect with the entrepreneur and then start a business plan. So this is some of the things that we're going to talk about. So I hope y'all are going to really take heed to this because black wealth and knowledge is going to create something great for each and every one of us as individuals and also as a community. You know what I mean? Right. So SNA members, you're going to be put on the game and y'all can get a head start into securing this bag and maintaining stable financial literacy yeah let's get it so you gotta tune in to our upcoming episodes y'all gonna learn a lot more with my co-hosts erica and isabella we got so much more we gotta exploit this field it's not enough that we doing pay yourself first you are the most important creature in your life and then afterward invest that's it that's our show Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Lounge. And let us know your thoughts about the discussion we had today by emailing us at podcast at snme.org. <laughs> and be sure to follow the SNMA on all our social media platforms to stay up to date on upcoming events. And if you like what you're on the show and want to be involved, reach out to podcast at snma.org to join our team thank you guys so much for listening and that is all we have for you 